Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, babies. All season long, I've been getting these hilarious tweets about how much you love our theme song, and I love it so much, too. So I asked a few fancy pants composers here at WNYC to take a break from listening to Beethoven or Mozart or freaking, I don't know, Right Said Fred, and remix our fancy-ass song. Now, I've asked you to help me pick the winner. Yeah, that's you. I'm talking about you. You're listening to me right now. That you. The remix with the most votes will be our official theme music for our token white guy episode. So go to so manywhiteguys.com slash vote. Remember, the so has three O's in it to hear all of them now and pick your fave. Here's a little titillation for you. And now, a special edition of So Many White Guys. TB, you're going to give it away. TB, don't give them too much. you got to lose them one and more. Okay. Number one rule of show business. (laughs) That was no business like like show business. business. (laughs) Welcome to So Many White Guys, Booze. It's me, Phoebes. And you know what? It's almost time to go back to school. I mean, I'm not going back to school, but it's happening literally everywhere. I would dread going back to school all summer. I hated it. The only thing that I liked was I would get a new school outfit. But aside from that, it would just, this like dread just overwhelmed me. I hated, I hated going back to school. Did you like it? I'm just shocked to hear this because I just feel like you were probably like a popular kid. Uh, I think I was a little dark. I think I was kind of a dark kid. I had like a very good group of friends, but I was like not popular. Aww. Yeah, I mean, I didn't dislike school. I just felt like what I was interested in, they like weren't teaching. It was just a lot about like math. And I was like, her pass. Um, I never had, I never had a boyfriend in high school, and I was just like so consumed with like I was gonna like be alone forever. So that was kind of coloring my high school experience. But I didn't have the the sense of like, oh, I don't I hate this that you had. I was just kind of like, is this gonna be my life forever? Because this sucks. Oh, did you go to prom? I went to my senior prom. I, I went to senior prom and I went to one of my homecoming dances and this outfit for homecoming literally I have pictures it is so <laughs> horrifying I had like a white pleather <laughs> jacket with like shiny ple- like red pleather like Eddie Murphy raw pants and it had like a white tank top with like red Kisses all over. Where did you get it? I think my mom. <laughs> where did my mom and I get this fucking monstrosity from? It's something like, maybe it was like, like a Charlotte Russ. Do you, did you oh have that? God, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a divorced woman going through a crisis outfit. <laughs> Can we, do you have photos of this? Can I we do, put it on the website? I do have pictures of it. It's literally embarrassing. Did you wear high heels? I 
I think I had like like shiny like black boots. I it's just like why? Who did you go to the dance with? It was just like me. It was like me and all the black kids. We like went together in my uh-huh. grade. We like hung out and we all were like being like posing in pictures. Like we were really cool. And it's like, why did my mom, my mom had to have known that this was like not a cute outfit. I feel like parents straight up sabotage us. Wait, did you? I'm just curious. Was there a hat that went with the outfit? It there, sounds like there should be a hat. There was no hat with the, out, okay. the outfit. Thank goodness. But there were a lot of terrible fashion choices. And I blame part of it on the fact that it was like late 90s, early aughts, which was kind of a shit show time for fashion. But also like Cleveland was like, yo, you guys are not on point with your clothes right now. I have to say your outfit sounds like the kind of outfit that a girl group would each wear a different version of. Yes, yes. But it wasn't like Destiny's Child. It was like Eden's Crush. Do you remember that? (laughs) (laughs) Man. I know. I know. So many white guys. So many. So many white guys. Hey, boo-boos! My guest today is the bad feminist herself, the one, the only, rocks and gay, y'all. But guys, she is so much more than that. She's also a great cook. Have you seen the pics of her veggie enchilada casserole? If not, stop what you're doing right now and go follow her on social meds, please. Thank you very much. Also, she's a professor at Purdue University a contributing op-ed writer for the New York Times, no braggies, and she's the unofficial president of the Channing Tatum fan club. Plus, she's got a new book coming out called Hunger, a memoir of my body. She's amazing. You did such a good job, Phoebs. Okay, we (laughs) gotta get to the sponsors. But can we just hang out for a little while longer? No. Okay. We gotta make that money. Gotta make that cheddar. Make it rain. Gotta make that vegan cheddar. Because you're lactose intolerant, so you need vegan cheddar so you can poop. That's so thoughtful. Sorry to share your whole life. (laughs) Can we cut out the poop part and post? No, we're keeping all that, baby. Here we go. No, here we go. Bye. Welcome back. Oh, you guys, I'm just going to be honest. I was crazy excited to interview Roxanne Gay. Like, cray-cray excite. Do you understand me? If you have somehow missed out on her, I feel bad for you. Roll it. I want, I want to take you to the OG strip club sometime. That sounds great. Yeah, I think you will have a good time. I think do I you, would. Do you drink at all? Oh, girl. Okay. I just wanted to make sure, because some of my friends don't, so I don't want to be like... No, I'm grown. I drink. <laughs> you know, I don't... Um, but Rose? No. I drink real wine. Uh, I drink... 
<laughs> Rosé's by Jake and Choice. And I feel like that was like you a need little to bit get, shots fired. You, it was shots fired. You need to get your shit together. <laughs> Rosé isn't wine. Rosé is fruit juice. Uh, no, I drink Pinot Noir. Oh, that's very classic. I'm 41. Yeah. Okay, so. Let's just, I'm 31. And that's a decade of difference. <laughs> you are still clearly holding on to your 20s. Uh, let me know when you start to drink real wine. <laughs> Not only that, I pay more than $10 a bottle. Oh, okay. Yeah, I pay you're, 11 you're, <laughs> you're very, very fancy. I am so fancy. Yeah. I like a good Pinot Noir. Yeah, that and sounds so, nice. Mm, I, I'm already excited about it. God damn. Roxanne? Phoebe. Thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. Honestly, I'm so thrilled that you're here. I mean, you're one of my favorite writers of all time, and you love pop culture stuff so much, just like I do. So I feel like we're kind of Kendrick spirits right now. I love pop culture stuff. So I want to start with one of our favorite things in pop culture, and that is HGTV. Mm-hmm. Praise. It's so good. I mm-hmm. feel like I don't know anyone who doesn't like it. What's not to like? It's yeah. the most diverse network on television. Which is something that I did not think about mm-hmm. until you just said it. And I don't think people think about it either, but you're right. They'll show, like, gay couples buying a house, people from all different religions. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants a home. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy to be diverse about that. Everybody's got to live somewhere. But, you know, it's really interesting that they never really talk about the diversity thing. I don't even know if they've realized it, mm-hmm. but if I were them, I would be marketing the hell out of that. They could, like, double their viewers if people knew. It's really one of the most slept-on things about HTTV. But sometimes you just want to see a queer couple. Like, there are these lesbians who bought a house in Los Angeles, and one of the women was a surfer. And she was actually on a previous reality television show, and her ex-girlfriend follows me on Twitter. And so I was <laughs> tweeting about that episode, and it was the circle of life. And then another day I tweeted about how much I love HGTV, and they sent me a humongous swag bag. <gasps> I have all the HGTV swag you could imagine. Wait, what did they send you? A huge tote, and like a love sturdy it. tote, like the kind you would take to Martha's Vineyard and like go to the market with. Nice. And um, a koozie, a birdhouse. Wait, they sent you a birdhouse? They sent me an HDTV bird, branded birdhouse. It's tiny and red and made out of, like, aluminum or tin or something. It's really, really cute. A, a, an iPhone case. You should do. You should tweet about other stuff. I, that's my plan yeah. now that it works. I mean, I wasn't going for swag, but, like, what I'm going for is I want a TV show, like, those shows where you talk about what's happening on TV, but about HGTV shows. <laughs> That's a very particular market. It is, but it's but. still going to work. <laughs> it's still going to... I mean, I think this is a proven concept because yeah. whenever I tweet about HGTV, people are like, yes, because everyone watches it. That's true. House hunters or divorce hunters, as I like to call it. <laughs> Tiny house hunters. It's just so much. It's so good. <laughs> That's... I'm, I'm, I like your commitment. I'm going to do that with my tweeting. I gotta yeah, step my game. You gotta up. step up your game. I mean, mm-hmm. ask what, for what you want in this world because it's not going to be given to you unless you do. I'm gonna start tweeting at Oprah and Gail because I just want them to be my. I've friend. tried that. I have tried that, and <laughs> anytime I have a book come out, my girlfriend <laughs> tweets at Oprah in a crazy, crazy tweet storm trying to get <laughs> Oprah to pick my book for the book club. <laughs> Oprah, if you're listening to this, you're probably not because you're very busy with your life, but. All of Roxanne's books should be on your on your book club. Absolutely. 
All of them. Yeah. No, but I would actually, I would love if she would pick my next nonfiction book, Hunger. I think yes. it would be a really good fit for her book club. I'm really excited about that because that's a memoir. And I know you talk about uh, self-image, weight and perception and food. So I'm kind of curious what you think that your book or what you hope your book will add to the conversation about those three topics. Well, I think that oftentimes when people write about fat, they write about it on the other side. Mm-hmm. I lost this weight and this is what I learned about myself. And here's me on the cover of my book standing in my fat pants and like one half of my fat pants. And so and I start hunger out with by saying this is not that book because it isn't and so I'm writing about it sort of from the inside and also like what it's like to be bigger than what we conceive of when we say fat or BBW or anything like that like larger than Lane Bryant fat Uh, we just have no narratives about that other than what TLC loves to schlock around with their my 600 pound life Mm -hmm. um, which is just tragedy porn and some of the most exploitative television that it's on the air right now. And, and it's just so dehumanizing. And uh, so I wanted to bring some humanity to the experience of obesity. You've written about and talked about memoirs in the past and how that's like the default for women writers. Um, like that's the only thing that women can be an expert is on themselves. And I'm going to read this quote that you said, uh, writing as a woman, you face with, uh, you're faced with some really difficult choices. Oftentimes, the only thing women are allowed to be experts on is themselves. We're expected to write deeply personal essays, but then aren't equally expected to write a political essay or something historical and deeply researched. Do you still feel that is the case with women writers? Um, oh, yeah. You do? Absolutely. Um, I read a piece in The New Yorker uh, probably a month ago about a Korean woman who went to North Korea and wrote a deeply researched investigative piece about North Korea, and it was billed as memoir when her publisher got their hands on it. Wow. And so we are just never given authority over anything but ourselves. And... We're expected to write memoir, and we're expected to cannibalize ourselves for content. And, I mean, you see it even in terms of, like, Exo Jane, for mm-hmm. example. I think that's a website that has absolutely gone to the extreme. Uh, one day I read an essay on there about a woman who found a hairball, a cat hairball in her pussy. <laughs> like, no matter what she goes on to do... She's going to be the girl who wrote about the cat hairball. Yeah. And that's sad. I think you should be able to write about whatever you want to write about. And mm-hmm. if it had been written more as a comedic piece, that would be fine. But it was all very lurid and reality television-esque. And uh, I'll never forget it. But I just think we are we deserve better as women. And we should treat ourselves better. And, you know, no man in life will ever be asked to write a corresponding essay about finding a hairball up his ass. <laughs> it's never going to happen. That's true. They, right? Uh, yes. It's never going to happen. And that's a shame. And so we have to just continue to write what we want to write. Mm-hmm. And I think if you want to write memoir, by all means, write memoir and hold your head up high. But if you want to write about something else, if you want to write about neuroscience research or um, bioethics or or global warming, then you should absolutely do that. And when an editor says, but where are you in this story? Um, You know, say reporting it, Mm. you know, 
we, we just need to know everything about women. We don't really allow ourselves to have inner lives and things that we hold back for ourselves. Yeah, and it's also, I feel like in a lot of ways, memoirs to certain people like aren't as respected as other pieces of literature are. Mm-hmm. And to me, I feel like memoirs are so difficult to write. Mm-hmm. They require such a level of objectivity about your life with also also being personal. And I don't understand why there isn't that respect there. Is it mainly because more women tend to write memoirs or is it just because the confessional nature of it, people think like, oh, well, anyone could do that. Anyone could. But it's like not anyone can. I feel like we we all work our whole lives to get to a point where we can be honest. So I think I don't it's know. both of those things and also um, that people think it's easy. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's your life. So you're just sort of reaching into your memory banks. But, you know, it's also that anybody thinks that they can just pick up a pencil and write or a laptop these days. And that's not the case. I mean, yeah, you can write, but you might not do it well. Mm -hmm. This is a craft. And whether formally or informally, we train ourselves and we learn and we grow as writers. And writing memoir is a craft because you have to make choices. Memoir is not autobiography. Memoir comes from memory, mm-hmm. which means that it's about a specific set of experiences rather than the entirety of a life. And so you have to make choices about those experiences and how to communicate them and why. Um, and, and so it's just really this odd contradiction, but we see it all across publishing. You know, we encourage women to write memoir, but then memoir is devalued. Mm -hmm. Uh, We encourage women to participate in publishing, and women dominate actually publishing from behind the scenes, and yet women are underrepresented in so many literary spheres. It's just, it's endless. And, you know, ultimately it goes back to the pervasiveness of misogyny. Yeah. The patriarchy, man. They're fucking everywhere. Yeah, I, uh, I want to. I, I'm curious because you brought up the the publishing world, so I'm kind of curious how you, like, how do you view yourself in the landscape of publishing? Because you're highly respected, and I am. Yeah, I think so. Oh, nice. I, anytime I mention your name to anyone, they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah." yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, you're you 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 do have a, a you have a certain status, which I think is fantastic, but. I'm wondering how you view yourself in the landscape of something that is so dominant and not women of color, basically. You know, I've actually been really lucky. Mm-hmm. As a writer, I've had excellent experiences. I have two publishers, one for my fiction and one for my nonfiction. And I have been very well treated at both. Mm-hmm. And I don't take that for granted because you hear all these horror stories every day about – um how hard it is out there and books that are, aren't well publicized and that aren't well supported. And I have not experienced that. I toured both of my books um, in 2014 and received incredible publisher support in every way and continue to do so with my forthcoming books. Um, but every time I visit my publisher's offices, I rarely see people of color mm-hmm. working in editorial roles, in publicity roles, in sales roles. And that's painful because we have people who are curating books from writers of color who know very little about the experiences of writers of color. Now, 
you don't necessarily need that. Like my editor for Bad Feminist, Maya, I, I would have her edit everything I write for the rest of my life. She's mm-hmm. just, we're this close. It's that good. Um, but it does help to have people on staff who are going to think about things that would never occur to white people. Yeah. And you see this in television and in movies. There are just none of us in the room. And so I see it as my responsibility to bring attention to the fact that there aren't enough of us in decision-making rooms and um, to try and change that in any way that I can and to just hold their feet to the fire. Like, yes, my career is great. And What's really frustrating is that when I talk about these things, people are like, you're doing fine. And I'm like, it's actually not about me. You're right. I'm doing fine. And not only that, please don't misunderstand. I have a day job. Mm-hmm. So I don't need any of you or any of this. Yeah. Um, and, and which is very freeing, I must tell you. It's so good to know that I'm not beholden as of yet to this industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but not everyone is in that position. And... um that, again, that's why I do it. And so, no, it's not about me. I am – you're right. I am fine. I'm more than fine. I'm great. Um, but not everyone is. And so there can't just be one. Yeah. There really just cannot be one. And over the past two years, I've had young black women write me and say, my agent pitched an essay collection, but the editor said that we already have – there's already a Roxanne Gay. <sighs> and that breaks my heart because – I don't yeah. want to be the the fly in the ointment. I don't want to be the impediment to other black women being mm-hmm. able to narrate the world as they see it. And it, it's actually just disgusting that someone would think that because we're all different. And it just shows how narrowly they understand diversity. Uh, it, you can't just have one. Yeah. That's ridiculous. That's not diversity. That's actually even worse yeah, than having none yeah, in it's some like ways. A charity thing. Mm-hmm. And it's also operating on the assumption that we all have the exact same life experiences, which is we absolutely do not. You, I think we have something in common that we both went to private prep schools. Where did you go? I went to Gilmore Academy in Cleveland. You went to Gilmore? Yeah. You ended up, I didn't board there, but you boarded at your school. Mm-hmm. But I'm kind of curious as to what that experience is like, not only boarding and not living with your family, but also boarding at a predominantly white school. And what I, was the name of your school? I went to Exeter. Um it wasn't any different from anything I had known. Mm-hmm. I had spent my entire life in predominantly white environments, except when we went to Haiti for the summers. Um, so I was used to it. The challenge, the culture shock for me was class. Mm-hmm. I was upper middle mm-hmm. class at that point, and I had known a very comfortable life. And then I went to this school surrounded by the ultra-wealthy. And, I mean, kids whose parents gave them cars before they turned 16. I mean, what? Um, One day I was in the bathroom and I was looking at the grate and I saw a name and I was like, huh. And whatever the name was, like Hinkley or something. Mm -hmm. There's a Hinkley that goes here. His family owns that company. The Heinz Ketchup Air was there at the time. And so it was just to see that level of wealth Mm -hmm. and the kinds of people it produced was a lot it was a lot, and I, I didn't even realize until many years later how much that affected me because I had always been really privileged. And then I went here and I was like, oh, wow, this is a whole other level. And um, I didn't feel 
bad about myself. It was just overwhelming to mm-hmm. realize how big the world is and how much money is in the world and what wealth enables. Because so much just dirty shit goes down in these places. And the parents buy a statue or create a scholarship fund and it's all better. Mm. And then you have all these white kids who don't know that there are black people who don't live in the inner city. And so they, I remember, you know, especially during the first couple months, they would say, so you're a scholarship kid. And I would be like, no, I'm actually not. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But no, that's not my experience. Um, and, And they were just stunned by that. Like, they had never understood that. And then the black kids just had never met a black kid like me who was, uh, you know, the daughter of Haitian immigrants. And so I was raised around Haitian culture rather than black American culture. And Mm -hmm. so I had very little familiarity with black American culture. And so I made some missteps. (laughs) Ooh, like what? Oh, my God. I remember one day they were talking about food stamps and they were all like laughing and kikiing about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, my mom has food stamps. Um, She gives them to us to stick on things. Uh, so Safeway they many were years like, ago. We hate you so oh yeah, much. they yeah. never let me forget it. And the, what I was thinking about was Safeway back in the day, like mm-hmm. in the '80s, had this like these stamps that they would give you when you bought groceries. And I don't even know what they were for, but my mom never used them, and so my brothers and I would lick them and stick them on things. Yeah, because <laughs> we like to lick them, if no, it tasted gross. It was just a weird thing that kids do. Yeah, and so I thought that was what food stamps were, and I just really, really wanted to participate in the mm-hmm. conversation. And so I had to confront my privilege in many different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that one was more awkward because I wanted the black kids to love me yeah. and to pull me into their embrace. Uh, but and that never really happened. But there is something to be said for sharing a skin color. Mm-hmm. I could still, even though they would make fun of me, I could sit with them and walk around campus with them and sort of be part of them. And so that was great because there were only 48 of us out of 1,000. 48 black, black students? students. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. 48 out of 960. Yeah. And I've never forgotten that number because there were just so few of us. Mm-hmm. I want to I go back to uh, Bath Feminist because you mentioned that earlier. And I, that's one of my favorite works of yours. And uh, I like because you started out by saying, don't put me on a pedestal. I'm wondering, do you feel like people still do that and they look to you because you have had so much success and because you're really good at your job? Do you think that people still really kind of look to you to be that? Yeah, they do. It's really frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I understand it as well. Yeah. And... I don't mind the responsibility of people looking up to me. What I mind is when that responsibility becomes a burden because they expect me to be what they think I am rather than who I really am. You know, you read my essays and maybe follow me on Twitter, but you don't know me. Mm-hmm. You really, really don't know me. You know what I'm allowing you to know. And a lot of people are really unable to make that distinction. A lot of people don't like when you, you know, think with nuance and when you hold contradictory opinions and when you say something they don't like. And so one day I retweeted something that was Vaguely pornographic. Mm-hmm. I have no problem with porn. Yeah. And 
someone said, you know, this is really anti-feminist and contradicts your work. And then I'm like, you haven't read my work then. Yeah. Uh, and so those moments are challenging for me because I do want to hear the criticism and try and respect it. But at the same time, I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? And who do you think you are? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, so it's just a negotiating act as with most things, of recognizing that when you put your voice out there in this way, there is a responsibility that comes with it, and you have to learn how to carry that responsibility with grace. And so I do try to do that as much as I can, while also pushing back when people are just expecting me to be something I'm not. I mean, you know, it's just crazy. Um I, even though it's been two years, I still am some, somehow adjusting to the mm. success of the book. But I, it was also... It's not just a book, but it's just a book. It's not the entirety of my intellectual interests. Mm -hmm. And I was definitely not trying to become a feminist leader. (laughs) That was not on my agenda at all. There are so many other voices out there that are smarter and more well-read about feminism. Um, I'm just a very opinionated woman. And it's a a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So for people who aren't familiar, ta Coates has been writing the character Black Panther for Marvel, and now the two of you are teaming up on a comic that's going to expand the world that character lives in, which is amazing. And it's called World of Wakanda. Black Panther is the king of Wakanda, but this is meant to focus on other characters. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited about that one because I used to read comic books a lot as a kid, and then I, I think when I became a teenager, I just stopped, and I don't know why. But I, I'm really excited that you're going to be... In this landscape now, you're going to be writing stuff for them. Um, were you always a comic book person? Nope. I am very new to comics. I've oh, never, okay. No, I read Archie comics as a kid. I right. read them a lot, actually. But I had never read into this universe. I had never read into the Marvel universe at all. When ta emailed me, he was like, I've got this crazy idea. And I was like, yeah, bro, that's a crazy idea. Yeah. But And so when he wrote me, I was like, hmm. And I was intrigued by him doing Black Panther. And I didn't realize when I said yes that I was going to be the first. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I, I found out from the New York Times and when they ran the article. And I just thought I, – I, I Googled because I was like, this can't be true. It's 2016. Yeah. There's no possible way I'm the first black woman to lead a Marvel comic. And turns out I am. Which is more pressure. And, you know, I've just, I've been the first for so much of my life. And I can't believe I'm still the first. Yeah. But I am writing a book about black women. And some of them are queer. Some of them are gay, straight up. That's awesome. And I'm excited. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. I am too. Now, I want to ask you one last thing. So, your Twitter bio says, if you clap, I clap back. I do. Which I think is very amazing. And uh, now that I have Two Dope Queens and I have this show, so many white guys, I've been getting more emails and comments from white men mm-hmm. who have a problem with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Girl, save yourself from the email right back. Don't ever. I because, did that this weekend. Oh, no. Yeah. All you need to tell them if you do write back is get a blog. Because I get those emails mm. when I write for the Times. And mm. people send me, like, these 8,000-word treatises on, like, everything I don't know about what I just wrote about. And so I just write back, get a blog. 
because uh, I don't need to know your feelings mm-hmm. in any way, shape, or form, or comment on the piece because I'm not going to read that either. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't read those emails. Oh yeah. no, you got to stop. Okay. Uh, yeah, you can clap back on Twitter, but you, clapping back on email is not going to accomplish anything. Right. Like, oh no, save yourself like that time. Yeah. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Okay, so I know that like sometimes you do need to stand up for for yourself mm-hmm. and um and I feel like that's what you do when you engage back with certain people is that because you want to stand up for yourself you want to just let people know you can't say anything crazy to me in public and I'm just going to be okay with it or yeah absolutely mm-hmm. a lot of it is that you know I was bullied so much as a child and I'm just mm-hmm. over it and I just like no you can, no not anymore not today uh, another thing is that I think you need to bring dirt to the light. I think people mm-hmm. need to see the level of harassment that black women and women and, and queer people receive online. It's shocking and unhealthy, and we need to bring it to the light. So don't tell me don't engage. I'm grown, and I know how to, like, handle my Twitter account. I have You have 25 followers, so stop. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I just think it's necessary to bring it to the light and to show people. You've got to expose these, like, people and... I don't do it with every comment, but I do make selections, uh, you know, on days when it's particularly bad just to say, A, this is happening and people should know about it and B, this is what these freaks are up to. Um, I don't know that it does anything, but it, it – I think it, it continues to increase awareness. Mm-hmm. The problem is that we're increasing awareness amongst a closed community of our followers. But doing nothing isn't the answer. It really isn't. You can't do it for the best of us and the most prominent of us. You have to do it for those of us who are nobodies, who just are enjoying life. And someone has a search thread on Twitter for uh, feminism, for example, and decides to go ham on it. Mm. You know, because oftentimes I get this harassment from people who don't follow me and that I haven't been retweeted. So I know they were just like randomly searching for keywords because they were sort of going on a troll hunting party. Wow. Uh, Just Twitter. I love Twitter. I do. But it's a cesspool when it comes to the harassment. Mm -hmm. These are actually not the emailers. The people who email genuinely think that they can change your mind. Yeah. They genuinely think that they can educate you on how wrong you are. They're actually not trying to harass you um, most of the time. Mm Mm-hmm. I once published an essay by Runda Gerard at Salon about um, white women should not belly dance. <laughs> yeah, I remember That's that. That's the yeah, most yeah, controversial yeah. thing I have ever <laughs> published. Two years later, I no longer work for Salon, mm-hmm. and I still get emails about wow. this essay. Like, white women lost their ever-loving minds. <laughs> what do you mean we can't belly dance? And it's like, why do you think this one writer can tell you what to do? <laughs> it's an essay. It's an opinion piece. She's saying, don't co-opt my culture. And you're like, how dare you? It's a great form of exercise. <laughs> I-, I mean, the level of hatred I received, yeah. like these passionate arguments for the belly dance and honestly I hadn't realized <laughs> that belly dancing was that deep I mean for for white women I, yeah. didn't, I just didn't realize it was like this thing but I, I live in the country so. yeah <laughs> well thank you for all the work that you do I'm thank excited you. for everything that's coming out when is hunger coming out June 2017 mark your calendars guys that's going to be a good one uh, Roxanne Gay you've been a delight thank you so much thank you Phoebe Robinson bye bye Oh, my God.
Mitch, can you believe that I got to talk to the Roxanne Gay? I mean, so, good. so amazing. And she, when she made fun of me for drinking rose, I like loved it. I wasn't even offended. I feel like if she makes fun of you for drinking rose, she's also making fun of like 80% of the population. Ooh, snap. That's very true. Yeah. Anyway, well, we got to get to the credit. The, the, do you want to like race through our episodes? I want to go home to my family, which is okay. myself. I feel like I'm your family. <laughs> you are my family. You're my work wife, but also you're my platonic life partner. Ooh. But we still have to get to the credits. Can we, like, scissor even though we're, like, platonic? Let me think about that. Credits. Roll, can we roll the credits? The So Many White Guys team includes Daisy Rosario, Rachel Neal, Joanna Salataroff, Paula Schumann, Jen Poyant, James Ramsey, Alex Overington, Rick Kwan, Hittekwambu, Dara Hirsch, and Merritt Jacob. Ooh la la. Hittekwam, baby. Friday, 1, 24 p.m. Phoebe, it's Alana. Um, I was thinking a segment that we could do is like self-defense. Like just sort of basic self-defense. What did you think? Love you. Bye. End of messages.